everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to the first episode of Behind the Curtain. I'm your host, Anna Nordmo, and I am so excited and honored to be interviewing my first guest, Aaron Dworkin. I came to meet him when he was dean of my undergraduate school at the University of Michigan School of Music, Theater, and Dance, which is actually where he graduated too, with both a bachelor's and master's in violin. He is known most for being the founder of the Sphinx organization, whose mission is to transform lives through the power of diversity in the arts. The Sphinx organization is an internationally recognized organization and one of its kind to address racial inequality gaps in classical music. Aaron Dworkin is currently professor of arts leadership and entrepreneurship at the School of Music, Theater and Dance at the University of Michigan, as well as professor of entrepreneurial studies in the Ross Business School. He was named MacArthur Fellow, which is also known as the Genius Grant in 2005, which is something that only about 20 people in the world receive each year. Professor Dworkin was also Obama's first appointment to the National Council of the Arts and currently is the judge of many international competitions as well, most notably the Menuhin competition in 2021. He's an author of a book, titled The Entrepreneurial Artist. He's written a science fiction novel, a memoir, he's a poet, he's directed two films, recorded and produced two CDs, and honestly is one of the most impactful professors I've ever had. I'm so excited for him to be on this podcast today. And I wanted to start kind of talking about your story and your background. You have one of the most interesting life journeys of anyone I know. Um, so could you start by just bringing me through your journey when you went through school? I remember when I was in class with you, you had talked a little bit about your experience having decided to drop out and then go back into school. And I thought you could kind of bring me through this whole time span until the point where you decided to start Sphinx. Sure, absolutely. And thanks so much, Anna. It's just great to be on the show with you and excited to be on this inaugural episode. So, uh, you know, I kind of had a, a little bit of a unique trajectory, um, but one that I would say was always filled with others who helped empower me on my path, whether that was individuals like teachers um, both instrumental teachers and academic teachers, or it was institutions as well that really provided a home and a, a solace and a place for me to explore, a place for me to fail, um, and a place ultimately for me to learn and, and move forward. So to kick things off, I started out life in Monticello, New York, but was immediately given up for adoption. Uh, and I was adopted by a white Jewish couple who were scientists, who were neuroscientists, behavioral scientists, who already had a birth son, my older brother, who's now a biogeneticist and cellular biologist. So it was very odd. So growing up, I was literally the black sheep of the family uh, in that uh, not only was I literally black or biracial and my family that I grew up with was white, but also they were all in the sciences. They tended to be pretty measured and thoughtful. And I was definitely more, uh, you know, kind of artistic, clearly from the get go and uh, prone probably to more emotionality. Uh, those types of things. And so my mother, my adoptive mother, was an amateur violinist. 
And she was listening to Milstein's recording of the unaccompanied Bach and really became re-inspired when I was around five years old. She was playing more. I really gravitated to it. And so I started when I was five. And I was very lucky to have phenomenal teaching. Uh, my first teacher was Vladimir Grafman, one of the great Russian teachers, brought the Russian school over and uh, ended up teaching those like Gingold, who taught Joshua Bell and many of our other major soloists. So I was able to kind of engage with the violin at a very early age in kind of an all-encompassing way. Started out in New York uh, when I was 10 years old, moved to Hershey, Pennsylvania. Very interesting uh, social change from literally midtown Manhattan to a town at the time that was one Black family in my school and me, big Afro playing the violin. Uh, so it was certainly character building. I was not, uh, you know, really accepted very well. And ostracized quite a bit and had some tough times and also really kind of began rebelling. Now, the interesting thing, just to hop forward a little bit to give you context, is when I was 31, I ended up being reunited with my birth family, my birth father, who's Black Jehovah's Witness, my birth mother, who's white Irish Catholic, um, who ended up getting back together after they had given me up for adoption and then ended up having another child who they raised my full sister. So basically, in the end, I'm a black, white, Jewish, Irish, Catholic, Jehovah's Witness who grew up with a big Afro playing the violin, right? So no big surprise down the road that I ended up having a huge amount of my life somehow wrapped up in issues of diversity in the arts, because it's literally who I am in my DNA. So, uh, so I was in Hershey, beginning to really have a tough time uh, socially, Although musically, I was advancing very well, had my debut at 13 with the Brook Violin Concerto and the Hershey Symphony. I won the Harrisburg Youth Solos Competition. I was concertmaster of the Harrisburg Youth Symphony. So I was doing well. I was going down on Saturdays to Peabody Prep, studying with Burl Sanofsky. So I really was excelling on the violin, but socially and at home and rebelling and really pretty rough stuff. And so then I ended up with this opportunity to kind of really, I was going to have to leave home one way or another. Things kind of weren't working out and things could be really bad, or I could go to the Interlochen Arts Academy. So this gets to that whole thing about people or institutions, right? Teachers like Vladimir Grafman, institutions like Interlochen. So I ended up going to Interlochen to the academy, year-round, uh, you know, preparatory boarding school academy for my junior and senior year of high school. And I credit Interlochen with saving my life. Some of my friends to this day are my friends from Interlochen. And, and it was just a very profound experience that was very moving. From there, uh, started out at Penn State, then ended up taking four years off where I got a lot of real world work experience, um, which I didn't realize at the time would be helpful later on, got nonprofit, for-profit experience. Uh, and then at the end of those four years, just wanted to get back to my music, to my violin, had kind of got myself on some footings, especially financial footing, because it was rough during that time, and got back to the, into the University of Michigan uh, on scholarship, and kind of as they will, the rest is history. I came back, uh, but now I was four years older than my peer students, so there was a little bit of an odd dynamic there for me, and I literally went into a lesson one day with my teacher, and he said, do you want to play music by Black composers? Keep in mind now, my whole life, I'm now 23, I guess, and, you know, violinist, 
never knew there were any black classical composers. No one ever mentioned it, never even dawned on me that it could be a possibility. And so I kind of was a little bit put off and he starts pulling these volumes of works off his shelves. William Grant Still, Roque Cordero, Joseph Boulogne St. George, right? All of these incredible composers throughout history. And it opened up my kind of mind and world to this music. And so I started thinking about that, started thinking about how I'd go to orchestra concerts and not see anyone on stage or in the audience who looked like me and started thinking, well, my whole life has been kind of embedded in classical music and in the violin. How is this possible? And then my thought processes are always, well, what can I do about it? And so that led to initially this idea of what if there was a competition for students like me and we could come together, play music by composers of color and gain the resources, scholarships, access to the top summer music programs, things like that, because I'd been accepted to Aspen but couldn't go because I didn't get enough of a scholarship, right? My life had been filled with opportunities that couldn't be accessed because of a lack of financial resources. And so that led to me, while still an undergraduate student, founding the Sphinx organization. Yeah, so I want to talk a little bit about this because what always blows my mind is Sphinx is such a well-recognized organization and really is hugely impactful for so many people, not only in the Michigan area, but around the world. And so can you walk me through how this became an idea and went from an idea to a real thing? Like, what was that process like? And what were maybe some difficulties that you encountered along the way? Yeah, so, uh, so pragmatically, it started with me having in swirling in my mind, the aspect that I was now playing music by black composers and just being bothered by the fact that I didn't know about that until that time and going to concerts, not seeing anyone on stage. So all of those things were kind of swirling around my mind. And what that led me to was identifying there's a problem in classical music. I also have kind of a personality of there's a problem can I solve it, right? And what can I do to potentially contribute to a possible solution? So that's where the thought began. And then that led to, okay, well, you know, there could be a competition and flowing that around and sharing that idea with a couple friends, things like that. So that kind of got me to this idea. Then from there, I really started kind of vetting it, sharing it more with people, asking them to poke holes, things like that. So that really kind of refined it in terms of what it could really be. Here is what it could be. It could be this competition. Here's what the participants would do. Here's what would happen in the finals. And here's what would happen to the winners of the competition. So really got a very good, clear sense of the idea. And then because of some of my experience in the nonprofit field, I was like, you know, I just feel driven. And then I, as I teach my students, made a decision. And the decision I made was, I need to try to make this idea happen. I'm going to do whatever I can to make this idea happen. May fail, but I I'm driven to try. And with that decision, so that's why I say ideation, then decision-making to say, I'm gonna do it. And then the actual process of building. So at that point then I'm like, okay, if I'm gonna do this, it has to be an organization. I have to be an organization with 501c3 because we have to be able to raise money. Can't raise money if we're not a 501c3 for the most part, unless you have a fiscal agent, you're not gonna raise much money that way. 
And so I went about, okay, to be an organization, what do I have to do? I've got to file my papers, got to build a board, do all of that. So I went about building a board of directors, filing all the paperwork, becoming an organization, and then laying out those core materials for what the organization would be. In these days, that means website and all those things. Actually, back then, not to date myself, but it was not, you know, I'd go, I didn't have a computer. I'd have to go to the computer lab uh, on campus and use up some of my credits to print pages out, things like that. And so then went about developing the materials and then thinking who would potentially be interested in supporting it. And then most important, reaching out to people to be partners. So we could have institutional partners for the competition, not the least of which was the University of Michigan itself to serve as a partner. So I want to talk about that a little bit too, because I think something that you do so well and something that a lot of music students and people in the arts often don't realize the importance of is advocating for yourself and reaching out to other people to garner their support. I know in the class that I took, you had told a story about how you were at a point in your life where you actually wrote personal letters to a lot of people and got attention from Robin Williams, which is really awesome. And I just wanted you to kind of talk a little bit about that too, and your process in getting support from other people to bring your idea to life. Well, absolutely. I mean, nothing that I did, nothing any successful entrepreneur does, they do by themselves, right? And so I am able to stand on the shoulders of those who came before me and did work. And of course, all of those who helped in that process. So one of the first things I encourage people to do is to ask. You've got to ask. I ask a lot, which means you're going to get a lot of rejections, means you're going to get a lot of people say no. Sometimes they do it kindly and sometimes they do it not so kindly. (laughs) So I'm used to that. And this is why I think the decision making is so important, because if I didn't make a clear decision for myself, I need to do this. Those rejections and all of that whole process and hard work, lots of hard work wouldn't be possible. So that's why I think it's so important to make that decision. Now, once you make that decision, you've got to ask. And even if you think it's someone you might not be able to reach. So I reached out to, and this was related pre-Sphinx to a homeless organization project that I've been working on during those four years that I had off. I reached out to Whoopi Goldberg, to Billy Crystal, and to Robin Williams because they had been supportive of homeless issues. And of course, wasn't necessarily expecting a response, got a lot of rejections. But then one day, you know, Robin Williams' wife at the time, Marsha Williams, called. And so those are the types of things that happen. But you have to ask. You have to put yourself into the situations where serendipity can happen in your life. And so I think if you're going to be a successful entrepreneur, it's not always going to pan out. So therefore, you have to have a regular practice of inviting serendipity into your life. And that means going to places, engaging with people, asking on a constant, consistent basis. And then what you'll find is even if there's positive feedback or responses, you know, 5% of the time, it could be transformative for your life. And in the case for me, that engagement with Robin Williams and his wife, Marsha at the time was truly transformative for my life. Wow. Yeah, that's so powerful. And something I love about your story and as we see how things have played out for you, there's this phrase that people always say, it's not about who you know, but about who knows you. And kind of along these same lines, 
you got to meet the Obamas. You were appointed by President Barack Obama to be on the National Council for the Arts. And so can you tell us about how you got into that position, how you were someone that Obama knew would be a great person for that job? <laughs> yeah, so it's, and I just chuckle a little uh, how President Obama knew I'd be a, a great person for the the job. I just would never, I, I never want to assume anything about how someone as brilliant as him thinks. Um, so, but what I can absolutely share is what I did, because these types of things, at least for me in my life, they don't just happen. I have to be in a constant state of activity, of work in some way, shape, or form to help make things happen. So the way that that happened and the way I would describe it is getting on his radar screen and then how he makes decisions. And of course, his advise with his close advisors and so on and so forth are all very involved processes. But in terms of getting on the radar screen, which I for sure, I'm sure was not prior to all of that was because it wasn't like I had any political connections or anything like that is that uh, he was running for office and I saw that he had developed an arts policy committee, the first major presidential candidate to have an arts policy committee. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. And I wanted to be on that committee, right? For two reasons. One, I felt I could be of help. I felt like I could bring value. And also um, because I wanted to be connected and to help and be a part of this extraordinary network. And for my perspective, the most historic, you know, presidential campaign in, in my lifetime and maybe even the history of the country. And so I did research on what the committee was and who was on the committee. I didn't know anyone on the committee. I couldn't just reach out. So I reached out to the most important people I knew. So one of the people I knew led one of our service organizations for uh, arts in the country. And I reached out and they said, well, I know someone who's coordinating the committee. They put me in touch with that person. I reached out to that person and literally just said in an email, I think I could be very helpful and of value to this committee. Here's all my background. Here's my bio, paperwork, resume, da, 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 CV. And that person said, well, you know, it really does seem like you are. Let me run this up the chain. They ran it up the chain and the committee and especially the chairs of the committee thought that that was good. And they invited me to be part of the committee. That's the only reason I became part of that arts policy committee. Didn't know anyone, just created opportunity for serendipity to happen in my life. Then while I was on the committee, I didn't just sit on the committee. I actively participated. I offered feedback, guidance, advice on the work that we were doing and how we could further the, the campaign and the president's platform as it related to the arts. And especially, of course, the diversity language of that was very important and felt like I could really bring some knowledge and experience related to that. So my work on that committee, and then at the same time, doing very good entrepreneurial work of networking with other key members of the committee, including especially the chairs of the committee, who were very close with the president. And so that is what got me on the radar. So then when those powers that be, once he was elected, were thinking about how do we appoint people to be on the National Council on the Arts, I was on the radar screen. And then beyond that, very, very lucky, right? That because there's a host of people I'm sure that they knew who would be more than qualified to serve. And for a variety of reasons, I ended up being one of their selectees to go forward in that process. So that's what I mean by that part was serendipity, right? A host of people, I could have been picked amongst a number of people, but the fact that I was on the radar screen 
absolutely as a result of active entrepreneurial best practice work that I was doing. And the thing is, is that I lived my entire life that way. And it doesn't always pan out that great. Right? That was extraordinary trajectory of things that happened. So you have to realize that you'll have that in your life and you'll have failure. Otherwise, you just won't ever achieve those things. And so from my perspective, unless you're part of that 0.00001% that somehow stuff just happens miraculously, you have to be an active participant in the luck that you will experience. And that was part of what I did in that particular circumstance. Wow. I'm just going to let that sink in. <laughs> this was something that I just really appreciated and enjoyed during an entrepreneurial shift class that I took with you in school because reading your bio and learning all these things that you've done, you know, it's just so incredible that all of these things could have happened. But, you know, I love how you can really break it down and say, well, this is really how I placed myself in this position. You know, there's only so much luck that can really play into this. You were really thoughtful about the way that you navigated through situations and put yourself in a situation where um, serendipity and luck could come together and things worked out for you. So I want to talk also a little bit about you were on this thing called the National Council for the Arts. And I come from a performer's background and I honestly know very little about what these people do. So can you talk me through a little bit about that and talk about who are on these councils and what kind of decisions are made and how does that impact performers, normal people who are not involved in the arts? So great question, and and I would say we, as in the council and or the NEA itself, could do a better job of sharing that knowledge so that people have a better understanding of how things actually work. So overall, of course, we have the NEA, the National Endowment for the Arts. This is the governmental agency that, if you will, is charged with furthering the arts in our nation. And this covers a host of disciplines, you know, from museums, visual art, music, opera, jazz, right, et cetera, across the board. And so as an agency, there's basically a group of discipline directors. There is a person who leads each of those discipline areas. And then there is a leadership of the NEA itself, the chairman of the NEA, who runs the day-to-day -day operations of the agency, who's appointed by the president. And then there is the National Council of the Arts, which basically oversees the agency, a little bit different than a typical board of directors, but in essence kind of oversees the agency. And in that really primarily charged with advising the chairman in terms of the work that the chairman is doing and ultimately approving the grants that the agency makes. So each discipline director works, they develop panels, they get all these applications that come in in terms of potential grants that people want from the NEA. They make various determinations, recommendations. Those goes to the chair. The chairman of the NEA looks through those, uh, you know, might affect those in one way, shape, or form as they look at the overall priorities and the strength of those applications. And then those come to the National Council on the Arts, who ultimately reviews those and votes on whether those should actually be approved or not and raises any potential issues regarding those. So in some ways, the grant-making function of the NEA is one of its most important. Certainly for most organizations, that's the most important. But also there's a research division and information, information about the arts, the value of the arts to society, 
very important for us to think about, to quantify, and to understand. And also partnering. How can the arts be connected with other governmental agencies? So part of what the chairman's work is, is working with other cabinet secretaries. It's not a cabinet secretary position, but they're able to work with cabinet secretaries to be able to see how can we look at housing and urban development? How can we look at the Department of Defense and see the role of the arts, especially in healing, addressing issues relating to traumatic brain injury, et cetera. So the chairman, again, oversees that. Those are part of key initiatives of the agency. And again, those are advised on and sometimes voted on by the council itself, depending on if there's dollars involved. And then there's a few key things like the National Medal of Arts, where the council comes together with the chairman to review uh, nominations and to ultimately come together for recommendations of who should receive the National Medal of Arts, which is the highest honor our country, our nation can bestow on an individual or an institution related to the arts. And ultimately the president reviews those recommendations and potentially might change them and makes their own decisions as to who those recipients should be. And then that takes place at a annual event at the White House. So ultimately as a member of the National Council on the Arts, I'm involved in that ultimate approval process of grants, but also really involved with trying to help advise and support the chairman of the agency itself and then other initiatives, including the National Medal for the Arts. It's really interesting to me because there are these organizations and people who are making these big decisions are really, they have a huge impact on the way that organizations are able to survive and continue and be funded. But as a performer, you know, you think about sitting in the practice room and practicing for X number of hours a day. So my awareness of these things really is probably lower than it should be. So I, I really appreciate that you've broken that down. I want to ask, too, about arts administration as a whole. Obviously, you were the founder of Sphinx and deeply involved in bringing it to where it is today. And I want to ask, what was your experience and learning curve in learning how to run an organization? And who were the people that you had to bring on board and commission their help to turn Sphinx into the organization that it is? Yeah, so also great question. I did have that unique aspect where I did have some real world experience. So I had those four years off where I got door to door canvassing experience, which is very critically important fundraising skills, and then some management experience, marketing experience at a company. So I did have some of that real world experience, but for the most part, you know, it was like a lot of it was happening for the first time. So I was learning on the job. Overarching all things, I would say that I was intensely curious about everything and just wanting to learn and soak up knowledge. And I was never afraid to ask and always, always asking and creating a space so that people whose opinions I valued felt very comfortable criticizing me. I was welcoming that critical feedback and just feeding off of that. So that I would say is very key. One of the key things I had to look at initial board of directors, right? So I knew hugely big, important people probably weren't going to join my board of directors right away. So I created both a board of advisors, which doesn't have that fiduciary responsibility and a lot of other commitments, 
and people are really lending their name in support. And then I had the board of directors, which initially were people that I knew and including a couple friends. You got to kind of put things together initially as you build your work. Um, so, but the board of advisors, I was able to have, you know, a couple professors and key people who I knew in the field just knew and where they were willing to lend their names. So did all of those things to kind of that. And then in terms of the, if you will, staffing, I knew where my areas of weakness would be. And so, you know, identified a friend who was better at writing, identified a friend who was better at some of the artistic aspects or repertoire than I was, right? And so those things, so I surrounded myself initially with people who knew more than I did in those key areas. And that, of course, was just a critically important part of that process. So surrounding yourself with people who are smarter than you and definitely better than you are at the areas where you're not as good and getting key people for your board of directors who will really, especially early on, do some significant work and people on your board of advisors so you can really have a sense of credibility uh, moving forward and then institutional partners so that you can also have credibility and some sense of a kind of support structure that's surrounding your effort and your initiative. And I know you have your own show, Arts Engines, which is really awesome. And you talk with these great arts leaders who really are powering the arts world. And as you call them, Arts Engines, which I love. Would you say out of the people that you talk to and the leaders, do they typically come from performance backgrounds? Because I know that you had studied violin performance for your undergrad and master's degree, or what kind of like backgrounds do you typically see in the arts administration field? Yeah, so great question. And I would say the vast majority absolutely had some kind of, uh, of their own artistic practice. And for the most part then came through and went initially to college or conservatory, focused on that instrument, but then at some point began to make a transition to a more administrative capacity. I would say that while that is historically been the case, that that I think is beginning to shift and we're beginning to see people who, while they have some artistic output, actually initially go to college or university specifically already thinking, I wanna be in arts administration. So I think that's gonna happen more and more. And this track of having been even a professional artist and then making the transition I think will lessen more and more over time. When people are in school, University of Michigan, where we both attended, they've added this minor degree and for arts administration. And these degree programs are popping up around the country. Um, so as a student, when you're thinking about career trajectory and what you want to do with your life, how would you say an arts administration career path differs from both a performance career path and from maybe like a corporate career path? Because I know for myself, at least when I was thinking about what I want to do, um, and still when I think about this, I think, you know, a normal job, you wake up in the morning, you go to work, you come home and that's your day. Whereas a performer, you have a totally flexible schedule, but you can be playing gigs until 11 p.m. at night. You have to work weekends. To me, arts administration seems like a happy medium between the two where you have a semi-normal schedule, but you're also getting to see amazing performances and be involved in great projects. So what has your experience been with this kind of lifestyle? Yeah. So, well, I'd say in any career path, 
how you develop it and how you architect it is really key. Um, sometimes some people just accept, well, this is just where I'm going to have to be with this. And they let others and or the field dictate or architect their lifestyle. I am a high proponent of architecting your own lifestyle as much as is possible with what you're doing. So in performing, I think there's drastically different ones, right? You have people who go into orchestral field in performance and who are stationed in one place, really aren't going out on the road at all, unless the orchestra may do a tour once a year, once every couple of years, versus you know a chamber musician or soloist who might be on the road 40 weeks out of the year. So I think that really depends. And you could even have a chamber group that because of the nature of what they do are really situated in one particular town or not. So I think there's a, a host of different types of things, whether it be performance or administrative. You could be an administrative person, but with a dance company that's always on tour, and thus you're on the road a lot. So it really could depend. Um, I would say, obviously, for the most part, administrative roles tend to be more stationary geographically. And then depending on the area that you work in, you could have, you know, wild hours. You could have kind of a nine to five-ish, maybe if you're in marketing, but development, often evening dinners and events that you're going to and engaging with donors at. So evenings and weekends can be very significant in development and certainly in leadership because you're a big part of what you're doing is fundraising and development. So again, I'd say it really depends and how you architect it is really gonna be, I think the biggest definer. And along these same lines, when I think about the changes that we've seen in this past year with the pandemic, how does this scene look different from when it did maybe two years ago? So what does this lifestyle look like? How have arts organizations had to change to adjust for there being a global pandemic? And then also, do you think that things after the pandemic, well, whatever after the pandemic means, you know, when things presumably return to the new normal, do you see things going back to what they were before? Yeah. So, well, I, I, the last part's easy to answer. I definitely don't think things are never going to go back to the way they were. And anyone who's kind of wishing for that is, is wishful thinking. Just things will not be the way they were. Um, obviously, we're going to go back to you know, live concerts again and performances and all that, but it's just not going to be the way that it was. The structure of things isn't going to be the way that it was. The way most organizations function isn't going to be the way that it was. Um, and also, unfortunately, there's not going to be some defining moment. We're not going to be on September 1 this year and all of a sudden 70%, 80% of people are vaccinated and now we're, that's it. We're post-pandemic, right? It's going to be an ebb and a flow, and there's going to be new unfortunate strains that aren't covered by and various things and various levels of security related to the virus and, and how people engage, especially in large groups indoors, which for those in the colder climates and the arts, it's all about large amounts of people indoors. And so uh, we're heavily, heavily, heavily affected by that. More so even than restaurants and other things because it's a whole lot more people. And when you talk about orchestra or choir, a whole lot of people doing a lot of exerting of breathing and things like that. So pragmatically, things are, are gonna be different for a while. And so those who are being innovative are the ones who are gonna not just survive, but who are gonna thrive in these new realities. 
those who are thinking, how can we do this? Probably some type of blend of it, different things, ways in which some of your constituents who are going to be more concerned about being around groups of people can engage with your art making, while those who have lesser concerns um, or may be at less risk who do want to be in a live experience will be able to. So I think there's going to be a lot more hybrid just like with teaching, there's going to be a much more of a mix now of their aspects that are live versus aspects that are online and those types of things. And ultimately taking the best of both worlds and combining them. And that's gonna be innovation. And so I think anyone who says here how things are going to be is fooling themselves. Cause I think at this point, nobody knows. Just like nobody knew, you know, recently, you know, what was going to happen with GameStop or, you know, no one knew what was going to happen with Tesla uh, other than maybe Elon Musk or, you know, so no one knows. We all can have predictions, but the people who are going to be most best off are the people who are taking action, who are actively thinking about it and actively preparing to shape what that new reality is actually going to be. And there was another obviously very important big thing that happened in 2020, which was this Black Lives Matter movement. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about this too, because this is admittedly going to change arts administration jobs and what arts administrators are looking to do. And so I just was curious to hear, you've obviously been trying to tackle this issue and address diversity since your work with Sphinx and even when you were talking about how your violin teacher had shown you all of these people of color who you could play their music and everything like this. So how do you see this kind of changing the future of arts organizations? So interesting in that I think like the pandemic, nobody knows. There are actions being taken now that are fantastic. I've seen more movement related to diversity, equity, inclusion than I've ever seen in my lifetime in the field. So I am optimistic. However, we have seen blips in the past. And so what no one knows is one year from now, when the events from this past year have ebbed for most people's daily consciousness, what is the systemic work that continues to take place? And so to me, that's what I'm most interested in now is not brief statements of solidarity and support. And isn't that nice? Those are nice and I'm not saying don't do them, but what's important is what's actually happening behind them. What's happening systemically at these organizations? What's happening systemically at foundations and corporations and funders of the arts? as far as who they're funding and what's happening on the side of arts organizations, especially large ones in terms of who they're employing and or who they're engaging as artists. And what are they doing to change that systemically, not just for this month? That's what I'm really interested in. And I would say the jury is out and will be out until a couple of years from now, we can see whether there really is and has been systemic change or not. I love that you're kind of cautiously optimistic about the future. I'm really hoping also that things really kind of move in a positive direction and stay that way. And so for people who are listening who aren't a part of the arts world, what do you think that normal people can do to support this positive shift to a more diverse and more inclusive arts world? Yeah, so I'd say first is act, action. 
Um, so whether if you're in a position of authority and power and influence to actually make decisions and to bring about change that is systemic and not just a temporary initiative. So I would say that. And then if you are not necessarily in a position of authority, but to bring these issues and to bring pressure to those who are in those positions of decision-making about the importance of it and the importance of making systemic decisions, um, not just kind of one-off initiative type of decisions. And the last thing I would say is the whole, you know, task forces and all of that. Big organizations, they always need to put forth a task force and a thinking group and, you know, all of these things. And uh, let's get thought leaders and thought partners together and do all these things. And I don't mean to belittle those processes because we should be sensible about the changes that we're making, but also not to diminish the work that we do, but most of this DE&I work that we need to do in the arts is not rocket science. It's very basic, it's very simple, and it's just the decision of whether people want to do it or not. For example, an orchestra where less than 1% of the works they have been performing are by composers of color, they can just say that now and from here on forward, 20% of all of the works that we perform are going to be by composers of color, period. It takes five minutes to make that decision by the executive director and the artistic director, maybe an uh, artist committee, players committee. Decision done. And then they follow, the music exists, the orchestras can play the music, and surely they have programming people who can think of really interesting ways to program those works. So boom, done. Every single orchestra in the country could do that today so that beginning tomorrow, instead of, which is what the reality is, less than 1% of all of the works played by all American orchestras are by any composer of color, literally tomorrow, 20% of the works performed by every American orchestra could be by composers of color. Literally, it could happen. You don't have to put together a working group. You don't have to put together a task force. You don't have to put together all of these things. You can just do it. So, um, so that's why I really point to a lot of things and say, yeah, it's great to get all complex if you want to, but most of these things, you don't have to. Then the things that really do necessarily require some complexity of thinking about issues of tenure and, and of screened auditions and how we're doing certain things like that on stage, absolutely some more complexity, but also doesn't take nine months to figure it out. You could take, you get a few really smart, engaged people in the room who are involved in the constituency that are going to be affected by any of the decisions made and you give them 30 days and strong incentive and they'll come up with a solution. And the solution may or may not work, but you'll have a solution that you can try to implement, understanding that because you're being innovative, you might fail, but you'll fail forward and you'll have learned from that failure. And now your next stage of what you decide to do will be far more informed than the orchestra that's just sitting around not doing anything for nine months. Before we wrap things up, I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about things that you're working on that you're really excited about. I am always just amazed with the number of projects that you have going on. I know you have two shows, Arts Engines and Artful Science, and I wanted my audience to know how they can find you either online and support all of the things you're involved with. They can buy your books, your CDs, your movies. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Sure, absolutely, absolutely. Well, as they say, you know, for uh, for my book, it is everywhere books are sold. So uh, entrepreneurial artists, check it out, Amazon, wherever. Uh, so, and obviously, first of all, I just, I love my teaching. I love my classes and awesome, awesome students like you, Anna, who just go on to do, you know, incredible things. That is what fulfills me and, and what I just love so, so much. And so I'm also very excited that we do have Arts Engines, which you can find at artsengines.org. And you can go and sign up, free to sign up to get the show. Comes out weekly. And of course, we're interviewing the leading administrators, the Arts Engines in our field. Um, and then also Artful Science, which is actually looking at key relevant issues in the STEM field, science, technology, engineering, and math, but looking at them from an arts perspective, from basically a layperson's perspective, right? So I'm not a scientist. So I've got, you know, amazing scientists who come on the show and I'm like, so well, how does this actually work? Everyone talks about, I know I'm supposed to wear a mask, but why? What's actually happening? What's the science behind wearing a mask? And tell it to me as a violinist so that I can fully get what you're getting to me with. So it's a wonderful show, a lot of fun. And that's again at artfulscience.org. And you can also sign up also free. And uh, and the show seems to uh, seems to be garnering a lot of attention and we have a lot of fun with it, so. I love how everything kind of comes full circle. You were starting to talk earlier in the podcast about how your parents are neuroscientists and brother is also in the STEM field. So I love how that comes full circle. I wanted to thank you so much for being my first guest. I always learn so much from you and it's great to just hear how there are things that you've done to bring success to your life that I can apply to my own. And I wanted to thank those of you who have tuned into the first episode. Please follow the podcast if you want to know when future episodes come out and please tune in next time to hear more inspirational and amazing artistic leaders and join me on my journey behind the curtain. Thanks so much, Anna. It was a joy to be here.